In part two of my special interview with Felipe Fernandez Amesto, the world's leading historian of the world, we talk about the multipolar world, America, explorers, and the value of history in cross-cultural exchange. The big question is whether the abiding influence of the United States is going to survive the rise of, of China and India. Uh, and I think to a great, great degree that will depend on how realistic my fellow residents of the United States are in making the necessary adjustments. You know, they've all been, they've become terribly used uh, over the last hundred years to um, looking down on everybody. And that was Felipe Fernandez Amesto reflecting on the role of America in a changing world. And we'll hear more from Felipe shortly. Welcome everyone to the Burning Archive podcast. This is my second part of my extended interview with distinguished eminent historian Felipe Fernandez Amesto, who I will give him the honorific of being the world's leading historian of the world. And he was very generous with a 90-minute interview with me in the previous episode, episode 114. The first part of that episode, which discussed the history of food and his perspective on world history, the nature of civilizations and of change, and whether we are changing so much that we can't quite cope without a fair dose of fear and a fair whack to the state of our mental health and in this week's episode in the second part of the interview we discuss we begin by discussing the comment by Xi Jinping that the world is going through changes it has not seen for 100 years a comment that I used to start this podcast with one which I asked Felipe Fernandez Amesto whether he agreed with before going on to discuss the fascinating topics of America, the changing balance of power in the multipolar world, his brilliant history of America from a Hispanic point of view, and his extraordinary work on the role of exploration in history, in global history, and of exploration as, if you like, the frontier of cross-cultural exchange, during which I also got to ask him about that figure from world history related to Australian history, Captain James Cook. Please enjoy the remaining part of this second part interview and I'll be back at the end with a few more comments about what's going on with the Burning Archive podcast. Please enjoy. On the, um, I guess, international changes in the international balance of power, uh, without getting political or anything, but um, uh, like when uh, Xi Jinping visited Moscow earlier this year, he, in front of the cameras, turned to Vladimir Putin and said um, that the world is seeing changes it has not seen for a hundred years and. We are leading those changes, I guess, referring to a shift from 
America, Anglo-America. Uh, uh, I'm not entirely sure what uh, he had in mind, but presumably changes in the big international systems of the world. Um, do you think that's true, that we're seeing bigger changes now than we have for 100 years? Because the last 100 well, years have seen a couple of world wars and a couple of revolutions. <laughs> God knows many, you know, many things. Was, every every political commentator in the world is being very lavishly <laughs> uh, um, rewarded in order to try to read that guy's mind, and you look into it, and it just seems to be be a uh, sort of quaking um, bog. Um, so I'm not sure that I'm going to second guess Mr. Putin, but what I think he, he had in mind was he was thinking of the Russian Revolution, and what he really meant was that. In the last hundred years, Russia hasn't exercised the influence in the world that she exercised at the moment of the Russian Revolution, which, um, which you know, did have sort of convulsive seismic ripple effects over much of the, uh, the world. It was a tremendous um, encouragement to revolutionaries um, everywhere. Uh, and and direct, you know, had sort of direct domino effect. You know, there were a lot of of, of comparable revolutions um, in the immediate aftermath of the Russian Revolution in Europe, although they were all at that stage pretty much repressed. Um, and and you know, if you look back to that period, there were a lot of people looking around the world. Spengler, you know, wrote this great work, The Decline of the West, uh, which. Um, he, and in many ways, was a representative. He saw what was happening in Russia as the model for the future. Indeed, Lenin, you know, so he explicitly advocated it as the model for the, the future of the, the world. And a lot of people um, um, thought that was probably true, probably valid. Uh, I mean, it didn't happen, and gradually the... Um, uh, I know the the recommendability of the Russian model <laughs> seemed to erode. You know, people sort of found out what was happening and the Stalinism they became a little bit less follow <laughs> Russian model or accept this Russian influence. And I think Mr. Putin has always rather regretted that. He's always thought that yeah, Russia ought to be the model for the world, as the nationalists often do about their own countries. And so when he says we, we, we're going back to, you know, something which hasn't happened for a, a hundred years, I think he's, he's hoping for a restoration of Russian power and influence in the, in the world. Um, I suppose it's probably not going to happen. And, you know, the, the future lies, it seems, much more with China. And perhaps, you know, we... we Geopolitics are going to be changed in future, also by very much by by um, uh, India and Brazil. Um, uh, to a very great extent, uh, whether the I just think I think the likelihood of, sort of restoration of major Russian influence in the world is probably very small. The big question is whether the abiding influence of the United States is going to survive the rise of, of China and India. Uh, and I think to a great, great degree that will depend on how realistic my fellow residents of the United States are in making the necessary adjustments. You know, they've all been, they've become terribly used uh, over the last hundred years to um, 
looking down on his body. <laughs> Uh, and just sort of accepting this sort of almost God-given manifest destiny of being the, the major influence on the rest of the uh, of the world. But these periods of hegemony don't typically last for very long, and clearly that of the United States is coming to if it hasn't already come to an end. And Americans need to adjust that. They need to have a more um, uh, collaborative um um, attitude to to other countries and especially to their own to their own neighbours. Reason why America became the world world's great superpower is that um, in the period of the the rise of the United States to that status in the nineteenth and very early twentieth centuries, they had this enormous country, an enormous amount of resources to exploit. That's no longer the case. They've pretty much you know, come to the end of, of what they can do with their own um, resources. And the, in the hemisphere, all the sort of um, uh, new resources are in the sands of Canada and the, the under the ice of the Arctic and uh, Chilean and Argentinian Antarctic and Amazonia. So Americans, if they want to continue to be the world hegemon, I think have got to adjust. They've got to do it in collaboration with other countries, especially countries in their own uh, hemisphere. And they also, I think, got to face the fact that they, they, they can't be the unique superpower any longer. They've got to treat um, China with... Um, uh, um, Prudence and um, and uh, um, an attitude of of, of of negotiation amongst equals. And I guess that I mean, I'd say that, that with regret. You don't like the Chinese regime. Yes. But, you know, you've got to be realistic. And I think one of the big yes, mistakes, for example, that Western democracies made in the nineteen thirties was to alienate Germany and Japan simultaneously. And I think it's an equal mistake at the moment to be alienating Russia and China simultaneously. Um, I, I, I don't like the Chinese regime, but I think it, we do need to be more accommodating if we don't want to drive Putin and Xi into a sort of a sort of alliance that uh, Germany and Japan inflicted on the rest of the world. Mm. Uh, and it's a very salient debate in Australia at the moment too, because well, I mean, America's our security partner, China's our principal economic partner or or um, economic relationship, and um, the idea of a war in the South China Sea is uh, not anyone's <laughs> wish really, but. Um, or at least yeah, yeah, in the way, in the there way, are yeah, a few Americans who perhaps do wish it, yeah. <laughs> I fear. <laughs> well, um, I, I definitely think, you know, in Australia, you are in a position to, um, you know, to, to, to uh, um, uh, look realistically at, at this relationship between America and China and give both sides good advice. <laughs> Yes, uh, one yes. of the things that, that worries me living in the United States is that um, uh, people seem to be incapable of China, seeing China as anything except an enemy. You know? mm -hmm. And obviously that can, it's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, if people were saying, well, you know, we've got to have more ships, more missiles. Well, you, this is... Uh, the, the, seems to me the way to proceed would be to try and find some accommodation. 
which you, you wouldn't need continually, you know, to be upping the um, the ante and increasing the risks of a war starting by by accident or misunderstanding. Um, uh, but you, you you start from the position that there there are so few common interests that it's not worth trying to negotiate, trying to sort of divvy up what's at stake. If you start from that position, I think that um, you can only exacerbate the enmity. And I'm afraid that's what's happening at the moment. Relations between China and the United States are deteriorating just at the time when what the world needs is them to be improving. True, very true. Um, and uh, I, I remember once one of my YouTube viewers asked me, you know, is there a way to encourage America to be more comfortable in a, you know, like a multipolar world, which I guess is a shorthand people people use for that sort of more equanimity of relationship between people and uh, uh my my best response to this viewer was to say well they should read felipe fernandez amesto's uh, uh book on the history of america and how how yeah, well thank how you. it's, it's not the usual anglo-american story it's it's a more complex warp and weft of of many cultures well, what's your perspective on on the the Hispanic history of America? Yes, well, I I, I was trumpeting my objectivity because this is a case where <laughs> it's more sort of objectivity of my 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 posture as a as a Hispanic in the United States uh, that does make me see the history of the country somewhat differently from some of my wasp. Anglo-Saxon yes. Protestant friends. Um, um, the, yes, the standard account, and it's still, unfortunately, you know, this is still the standard account that most American children get at, at school, is that the United States is the product of um, uh, a movement of people and ideas across the continent from east to West. And then these ideas fundamentally came from uh, Britain um, and from um, a Protestant intellectual tradition, which is usually, you know, if, you, if, you, if you've got a sufficiently intellectual teacher, he or she will tell you it's, you know, the ideas of John Locke were the, the starting point of, or the, the, the ideas of John Locke distilled from you know, the 17th century English debate about civil liberties and English civil wars of the 17th century, those ideas are the, the, the bedrock of the, the um, equipment, mental equipment, intellectual equipment the founding fathers um, worked with that created the United States. And the result is everybody else has contributed to the United States, including Native Americans and blacks and and. Jews and Italians and Poles and Germans and all the other nineteenth-century um, immigrants, without whom, none, with, you know, without those people, America wouldn't be what she is. It should be, it should be a different country. So all of those those stories tend to get underrepresented. But the most underrepresented of all is the Hispanic story of the United States, because. Uh, Spanish was spoken in the territory of the United States for much longer than uh, than English. Um, Spanish um, political and 
and economic ideas above all religious ideas um, were introduced into what the territory wanted now the United States long before there were any English settlers. Um, and to some extent, the our picture of a country built from um, east to west, although it's perfectly valid in itself, is incomplete. And as you all say, see, the country was built by another process of colonization from south to north. Uh, and, and, of course, you know, Americans also fail to uh, acknowledge typically that the Spanish contribution to American independence was absolutely vital. You know, there were more Spaniards fighting for American independence from 1779 onwards than, uh, than, than from p p people from the 13 colonies. Um, and, and the material and the, and the money, you know, mainly came from Spain. And France, of course, contributed. Everybody knows France contributed a lot, but the Spanish contribution is actually much bigger than the French one. So, however you measure it. So, um, so in all of these respects, and the way the country was forged by this, this convergence of movements from east to west and movements from south to north, uh, and in terms of the influence of um, Spanish culture, uh, and in terms of the direct Spanish contribution to the making of the United States independence and the, the Revolutionary War. The Hispanic part of the story is absolutely crucial. You can't begin to understand America if you don't take it into account. So in, in my book on American history, I kind of lift out everything else on the ground. People knew about that and focused on the Hispanic story. To some extent, the Hispanic story is, of course, also uh, um, an indigenous and a black story. So the, those perspectives do come into it. Um, but but my intention was simply to restore a part of the picture that is usually um, omitted. And, you know, to some extent, I suppose it was quite a successful book because it did attract a lot of comments. And it does seem to have, you know, influenced some, some teaching of, um, uh, of U.S., U.S. history. A lot of students do seem to read it, or to at least have you know, been given extracts from it by their the professors. Uh, and it does show that you you know, you 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 can get people to rethink their um, their past, but it, it's very difficult to do it other than by way of add-ons. You know, fundamental rethinking of of history is very hard. To achieve, and it's usually achievable only under conditions of terrible political oppression. So, you know, so if you censor out all the all the different perspectives and impose a single one by force, um, by silencing the opposition, by by mandating the compulsory use of tendentious texts and that kind of stuff, that's how you can change people's fundamental understanding of of the past, if you're just a sort of scholar in um, a university in, in northern Indiana, your your power is very limited. It's limited, indeed. Indeed. Um, you've had an extraordinary career as a historian, and I didn't haven't asked you about your various books on exploration uh, yet, so I should perhaps just quickly ask you about that, because um, the, the latest book is... Uh, it's called Straits Beyond the Myth of Magellan. Is that, that's right? And um, 
and in a way that's also a bit of a story of the uh, the power of ideas to drive people forward into both great achievements and grand <laughs> follies perhaps um, uh, and I, I think that you've also written a biography of Columbus and uh, wrote a global history of exploration uh, I mean writing about explorers has been a big part of your uh, professional career, I guess. Uh, what yes, what are your reflections on those individuals? Yes. Well, I was going to say I read a biography of Vespucci as well. I'm quite ah, Vespucci. fond okay. of that book uh, because I, I showed that in his youth he made his living as a pimp. <laughs> and I think it's just delightful, you know, to know that, that, that this vast hemisphere and the world's superpower are named after a pimp. <laughs> a pimp. <laughs> and, but I think the reason why I've always been interested in, uh, in exploration is because um, it's usually the first stage in cultural exchange. You know, cultures come into contact and begin to exchange ideas and influence and behaviours and food. It's not to exchange those when they come into contact with one another and it's explorers who forge the roots of contact and who re-establish connections between formerly funded cultures. And I personally, you know, I think that cultural exchange is a very good thing I think it's enriching, you know, to, mm. to have access to somebody else's culture. I love being, you know, in a place where there are lots of, um, of immigrants because, you know, I just can learn so much from them. And, um, and, and, you know, sometimes they've got ways of doing things which are better than one's own or one's own. Um, ancestors and very often cultures, you know, adopt the culture of the stranger empires have been very effective ways of uh, modifying cultures, very often, you know, beneficially for people's good, but sometimes for evil. But, but, but as I was saying earlier, there's always a mixture of good and bad effects in these processes. Um, so I'm really interested in the exchange of culture, how it, why it happens, what are the effects of it. And therefore, I'm interested in how it starts. And as I say, very often it starts with exploration. That's the basis of my, my interest in that, um, in that subject. The book on Magellan is, in a way, a sort of reversion to a, a sort of more traditional kind of historical writing. It's a very humanistic book in which I, you know, I take all the texts, that you do, you know, all the evidence, the textual evidence, I take it all into... Um, uh, in, under under advisement, and I, I study it with the humanist techniques of critical textual scholarship in order to try and see what uh, the sources really say and what was in Magellan's mind. And with Magellan, it's a rather difficult job because, unlike Columbus and Vespucci, who wore their hearts on their sleeves and they generated huge amount of sort of autobiographical material, which they talk about themselves, you know, they were very terrible egotists. And Magellan, although he was a tissue of horrible vices, wasn't particularly egotistical. You know, he doesn't, hasn't, didn't write very much about 
about himself. So it's a more difficult job teasing from the documents a sense of what he was like and what he was really trying to do. And I kind of, you know, the result of this process is that I, 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 I ended up thinking and I hope sharing that everything every educated person thinks about McGillan is wrong. <laughs> he was a completely different guy from the, the way he has been traditionally depicted. And as did white European males go, he was actually one of the worst. <laughs> uh, he, his crimes involved um, treason, murder, judicial murder, abuse of justice, arson, and massacre. <laughs> it's not a great record of um, good works. Um, but of course, he also did have um, great virtues of uh, dauntless courage and persistence. And I suppose that sort of, you know, you were talking about how he, about being driven by ideas, and certainly McGowan was um, a very driven person. But the ideas that he was driven by turn out not to have been, you know, scientific ideas or ideas about circumnavigating the world or anything like that. It turns out that he was driven really by social ambition. Uh, he was an orphan who grew up at the Portuguese court. He was a sort of poor kid in a school of rich kids. Uh, he wore a chip on his shoulder. He always wanted to recover this noble birthright that he thought he had forfeited. He wanted to be knighted. If you... We're brought up at the Portuguese court. The, the ultimate, you know, objective of the the education wasn't a diploma; it was a knighthood, <laughs> and he never got it. So, so that's the pretty crudely. That's really why he deserted Portugal, went to Spain, where he was much better received, and was put in command of this this extraordinary expedition to find a route to the Spice Islands. And the reason for that was that at the time. Spices were, by unit of bulk, hugely the most valuable products in the world. You know, make gold and silver look like crap. So, um, so he goes off to find the um, the spice line. And, of course, the voyage is the most complete disaster. Um, I, he mismanages it at every and he provokes a, a, a mutiny. He has to put a lot of his own men and officers um, to death. Um, he loses all, and ultimately the expedition ends up losing all but one of its ships. 90% of the expeditionary force dies or is captured by enemies. I mean, long-range voyages in the... 16th century were very hard, you know, and very costly. But even by the standards of the times, the 90% death rate is, you know, not commendable. Um, uh, and 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 one of the extraordinary elements of the story, one of the things which makes it such a dramatic story, I don't know whether I tell it well enough, but it's potentially, you know, it's a great story because he drives off even when failure is obvious. And he doesn't give up, and and some of his men desert and, and mutiny, but but some of them stick with him, and they just carry on in defiance of reality. And I think that's because, to some extent, they were inspired by romance. You know, Magellan's vision of himself was as the hero of a traditional chivalric romance, and he was trying to realise in his own life the the plot of a novel. 
Um, and eventually he dies in battle, I think in a, a, a deliberately contrived way. I think by that stage he knows he can't go home. If he goes home, he's just going to be tried for all his crimes. Um, he can't stay where he is because he's mismanaged his relationship with indigenous people, and he dies in battle against a, a native army um, in a way that I think is differently contrived to create a sort of legend of himself. He think he models his end on one of the most famous stories of chivalric romance, which is the story of Roland, who dies in battle against the Moors because he's too Thunder proud. Roland, yeah. Yeah. So... Um, uh, so it's a it's a very suitably literary and literally almost you know tragic end because he's the victim of his own hubris. Um, and so that's the story I tell, and the kind of I don't know sort of intellectual dimension of intellectual interest which arises from it and which I think helped to inspire me to write about Magellan is that you you end up wondering. So how is it that this guy, you know, of all those dead white male explorers, uh, is still venerated and esteemed? You know, his statues are still standing. Nobody is traducing his reputation. Nobody is besmirching his fame. Nobody is tearing down his monuments. Nobody is accusing him of being the evil guy that he actually really rather was. Uh, whereas relatively nice chaps like Columbus, you know, those guys... <laughs> are in real trouble, you know, they're, they're the, most, the most hated people in the world today. So it tells you something, or it suggests a problem about the vagaries of reputation. Why do some guys get the brickbats and others get the garlands? Uh, that's a really interesting problem, which I think has never really been adequately investigated or or solved. In Magellan's case, what it's worth, I think the explanation in part at least, is that uh, although he didn't, like Winston Churchill, guarantee his fame by writing the history himself, um, he did get a, a stooge to write it for him. <laughs> as, yes. as other very interesting <laughs> character in the book, Antonio Picasso. Who, who is somewhat under Magellan's spell. He's one of the very few survivors of the voyage and who writes this very appreciative um, account of the valour and intrepidity and um, leadership of his fallen captain. I think that really set the tone for the historiography of Magellan until now, and I've, I've, I've tried to discard that and show you what the truth really was. Sounds a wonderful story. It has uh, echoes of Don Quixote for me with the, <laughs> the man obsessed with chivalric romance <laughs> engaging. Well, you exactly. Know, perhaps it's, it's, rather less yeah. less generously minded yeah. folly. <laughs> well, exactly, because you know, Don Quixote is a very good example of um, a reader of chivalric romance who models his life on it, and many of these explorers did. Um, you know that... Uh, uh, Pedro de Quirunx, who discovered La Australia del Espíritu Santo, uh, in that was in 1605. This is a story I suppose based on Australian name. 1605. That was the year of the publication of Don Quixote. Ah, you know, so uh, he was and, he, and, and Pedro de Quirunx was doing exactly what Don Quixote was doing, but just on a global scale. He was he was sailing off to have an adventure and find find a new land and and conquer it and. And, and and fight monsters and things. he was expecting all that to happen to himself. You know, he he took on that voyage 
blue cloth to make nightly habits for all the members of his crew whom he was going to knight, give them knighthoods when they, when they achieved their, their objective. Uh, indeed, he did. He had a ceremony in which he knighted them all, including the black cooks. <laughs> at, uh, uh, have you looked at Captain James? I mean, I'd, I'd be amiss as an Australian if I didn't ask you about Captain James Cook, because in a way, uh, he's a, a, a similar explorer figure uh, and uh, who's similarly been, I guess, caught up in recent years in the debate. You know, the, 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 some of his statues have been defaced and things like that. And there's been debates about his role in history, but uh, in my admittedly amateurish impression, um, he is often one of the very few figures out of Australian history who ever gets into general surveys of world history. Like he's one of the few, like known figures, even though he didn't have much contact with Australia as such, but he's one of those very significant figures in terms of the opening up of the Pacific. And his his own death is a very tragic story as well, a tragic misunderstanding. Do, do you know, have you looked much at Cook in your... Well, yes, of course. I, I mean, I'm not upset. I, I, I haven't stated special. So I say my knowledge of Captain Cook is general knowledge, but I'm, you know, pretty good general knowledge. Yes. And he comes. I'm, I'm, I every year I, I, I try to devise at least one new course in my teaching because I think it's very easy, especially at my age, to get stale as a, a teacher. So I'm, I mean, for this coming semester, I'm introducing a new course on the history of exploration, in which. Uh, the works of Cook um, do appear, and I give the students some extracts from the the um, um, resolution journals to um, to study. Um, and obviously, he, is, he genuinely is a very important figure in the history of the world. Because I mean, again, this is putting it very crudely, but broadly speaking, before Cook, um, the Pacific was known really only in terms of the main wind coil. You know, people zoomed back and forth along the main the main routes of access between the Atlantic and the uh, Pacific and between Asia and Americas. Um, and Cook um, was outstanding, right? quite exceptional in covering, you know, the bits that other explorers had, had, had left out. And he also, obviously, in quality of his chart making and it's stunning you know when you look at you, know, you made a few mistakes and we, one, one, one of the interesting things about Cook was that he was a very open-minded guy you know and when in his journals he, he thought well, say, you know, well, I got this wrong and now it's, you know we know a bit better about that and I, I think you've just got to admire him for that alone but the accuracy of his chart is absolutely stupendous. I mean, when you think that he was crawling along the hide of the planet, you know, with um, with what by today's standards are very rudimentary instruments, and he gets the the chart making so accurate that you know you almost look one look at a satellite image, and you, you know it's stunning that he was able to do that. 
Um, and, and of course, there were lots of great uh, explorers and great chart makers in that period. But I think if, if there were a prize, you know, for the best chart making, Cook would get it. Um, uh, and and obviously, you know, he does things like just demonstrates that the the if there is a southern continent, it must be, you know, below the 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 ice line. So, uh, uh, and he also, you know, pretty much shows that the the the. Uh, the existing theories of where a northwest passage might be located between the Pacific and the Atlantic, there's a wrong. Uh, and, 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 and here's a great example of scientific exploration. Because what motivated Cook was scientific curiosity. It's very remarkable. He wasn't a person of great social ambition like Magellan or Columbus or Vespucci. He really was in it to satisfy his curiosity, and, and he turned it into a sort of adventurous exploit. He said, and my, my ambition is, is not only um, to go where a man has not gone before, but to go as far as it is possible to go. So, so he has got a sort of heroic notion of what he's doing, but it is scientifically um, inspired. He's never, never really seeking uh, the social rewards of ambition that uh, Vespucci and Columbus and Miguel and guys like that were after. Um, so Cook is a, a, a worthily commemorated figure. And to besmirch his or anybody else's statue because you don't like them or because you think you don't like them or because you think you don't like what other people did after <laughs> it's mad! <laughs> it, it's the height of folly to waste emotion and ambition where it can do no possible good. No. And, uh, you know, defacing statues, to me, that's, that's um, censoring the historical record. And instead of doing that, if you, if you think there are too many monuments to cook, put up monuments to your own heroes and we'll all celebrate great them. Um, and see what was good and bad um, about them. But the, this mania for tearing down other people's monuments is a, a, a form of folly and cruelty that I find very hard to condone. Because if you do that, you know, if you say, well, I'm so offended by your monument, that I can tear your monument down, you're creating a hierarchy of resentment. You're saying, I'm better than you. My resentment is worth more than your commemoration. Where's the equity? Where's the generosity? Where's the fairness and justice in that? And especially in Cook's case too, because he was, as you said, open-minded and there was that extraordinary, I guess, cultural exchange between him and the Polynesian navigator whose name I'm not quite remembering, Tuapai or something like that. But, oh, yeah, um, yes, yes. And, um, but it does go back to that issue of how do how comfortable people feel with the good and the bad, I guess, in the past, doesn't it? But, yes, the, the statue tearing down is, is something which is... Uh, a bit dreadful. And, I mean, in recent years in America, I, I seem to recall Cervantes' statue was torn down, which was rather uh, uh, unfortunate since he himself at one point mm. 
was a slave. But there you go. Yes, it's the, it, 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 you know, really um, very difficult to make Cervantes responsible for, for, for anything um, that happened in Spanish politics. He, he was very briefly employed as a tax collector, and he, he collected money that helped to, to pay for the, the Armada against England in 1588. Well, um, but perhaps then it's he, justified. He, 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 <laughs> you know, he, what he really wanted was to you know, have a state job that he was paid, you know, that he could, he, yeah. he had an income which said he could write, you know, in peace and that, which of course many people in the church and the bureaucracy in Spain did to some extent, you know, the church was out relief for authors. Um, uh, but he never really succeeded in doing that. So it is ironic that he should get the blame for, um, for political decisions that he had absolutely nothing to do with. And of course, it's also, you know, the case that Poor old St. Serra, who was an exemplary missionary who absolutely loved indigenous people and um, did his very best to protect them from exploitation by by secular abusers. Um, you know, he's also had his statues torn down and they've renamed places on the campus at Stanford University in order to obliterate his... his um, his memory, but I, you know, I just think that even if even if these commemorated individuals weren't worthy, even if they weren't great, and if they weren't weren't people who'd done a lot of good, you know, you should still respect their monuments because they are part of your own history. If you start, you know, tearing down the records of your own past, you're going to end up with a very distorted understanding of it because you're not going to have information access to the information that you formerly had at your uh, at your disposal I, I i don't waste time going on and on about this but i mean obviously i'm a you know i'm a catholic a spaniard when i'm working at the university of notre dame's london satellite campus uh, every day, my my walk to work takes me past a statue of King William the Third, who uh, um, uh, uh, persecuted Catholics and and, um, uh, and 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 abrogated religious toleration for Catholics, and I, and I pass a statue of Oliver Cromwell who massacred. I I don't say to myself, I run a tear those those. Those statues now, and I say to myself, if I'm going to understand other people in Britain, I've got to see why they admired and loved these these guys. I've got to see what was what they brought to the history of the country, what was what was positive. I know about their crimes and their, their wickedness and their evil, just about as I know about those that I'm guilty of um, myself. Um, but acknowledging that is part of also, you know, understanding the positive aspects, uh, without which uh, an account merely of crime and and folly would be would be extremely unrepresentative of the of the truth. Uh, and in a way that brings me oh, to. Oh, there's another example I'd like to mention, which is in Helsinki. 
Oh, yes. They're Helsinki. I don't know if you've been there, so it's, it's a wonderful city. The most conspicuous monument in Helsinki, which is right on the waterfront with the National Cathedral behind it, is this huge thing dedicated to Tsar Alexander II. Uh, have in Finnish history, you can have a more representative figure of the enemy. Yeah. Yes. And the Finns love this monument and they're very happy with it. And you see children, school children being taught, well, you know, here's this guy and he was our enemy, but we can still respect him. And that seems to me to be the right way to go about the, um, uh, I don't know, rehabilitation of hated um, the aspects of, your, uh, mm. of your, your past. Take the truth of it on board. Mm. Mm. Uh, uh, that's that's a great example. And Alexander II was the uh, very within the spectrum, the relatively more. Uh, was he the 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 which which czar was he? Was he the czar who um, emancipated the serfs, or was he the more reactionary one in the mid nineteenth century? I can't quite remember, but anyhow. He was uh, quite uh, oppressive uh, towards uh, well, Finland. Me, me there, I, I, as I told you, I can't remember dates. I now can't remember where. I think the, the um, emancipation of I think, was in the 1860s. Yes, wasn't it? that's right. Yes. Um, yes. So, yes. So, but then I, now I can't remember the dates of the, the particulars. Oh. Yes. Um, but the point is that from the Finnish perspective, he's yes. an oppressor. Yes. And an enemy and someone who tried to sort of rustify Finland. So, so, um, uh, so if there were anybody you you know you expect a, a Finnish nationalist to to want to tear down, it would be it would be his image. Yeah. But that sort of nicely brings me to, I guess, my final question, uh, Felipe. And you've been very generous with your time. We've gone a bit beyond the hour. I hope that's okay with you. Um, but I guess my last question was like, obviously, you've been a professional historian. You've uh, you know an enormous amount about uh, history as an academic discipline as well. But um, I wonder how you find that a sense of the past helps you in your to just live a, a good life in the present, so to speak. It, it you know not just as a professional historian but to bring it into um uh your awareness of things like statues and the the multiple heritage and cultural exchange how do you, how do you see the a sense of the past contributing to a good life for you as a well, as a person yeah when i when i get to lead a good life you know i'll, I'll try and tell you um <laughs> Because uh, you know, obviously, I, I'm um, I didn't, wouldn't set myself up as a, a, a model of um, moral behaviour. Um, nonetheless, um, I think there are some benefits to be had from from the study of of history, and you've alluded really to both of them. One is that it does give you, the, um, I don't know, some some ability to situate yourself in the world you inhabit. So you know one of the reasons why I think it's it's right to for children to know the history of their own communities, their own localities, and their own countries, is so that you know when they wander around the streets of their 
their home village or town or city uh, or when they travel in the countryside, they can they have a sense of why it is the way it is <laughs> uh, and um, and that they belong in a, a place which has, you know, those kinds of buildings and those kinds of hedging and those kinds of field layouts and those kinds of animals and so on. Um, and, and, and part of that security is, I think, part of the antidote to the fear that we were talking about earlier. So I think if you are at home in your own environment and you have some understanding of why it's the way um, it is, that is a source of, of emotional security. Well, the second thing that it can do for you is that, in a way, I mean, I don't do say I don't think it's done this for me, but it can make you a better person, because the whole point of his, I mean, objective, if you're studying it, is to try and sympathise with people in other times and other cultures, try to reconstruct what it felt like to be there, and if you can do that for the past, then you can do it for your contemporaries in cultures other than your own, because the, the uh, mastery of information, the application of disciplined imagination, the techniques for understanding the past are the same as those for understanding cultures other than your own in the present. So it can, you know, turn human understanding into a sort of a, a science and it can equip you to live at peace and mutual appreciation, constructive constructive imitation. I, you know, people get worried about cultural appropriation. It's a very good thing to learn from others and imitate them. Um, so it, 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 it equips you to do those things in peace and amity with your Neighbours, and you know, I never thought that anything in education needs justification. It's its own justification. <laughs> you, we're born with minds. Let's you know use them to work, make them work, um, uh, in order to try and keep them active, and if possible, even improve them. Uh, so education doesn't need any justification. No particular discipline needs any justification. But if you want a justification for including history amongst the stuff that you teach people, those are the two things. helps them situate the, themselves in that world, and it helps them understand ways of life and thought different from their own. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Felipe Fernandez-Misto, for a wonderful interview. Can I just ask you one last little postscript? Are you working on a, another book? Are you writing yes, another I, book? I, I, it's, I, yes, I don't know whether it's an addiction or what it is. <laughs> no one will be able a to stop me. perhaps. Yes, I, 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 I'm, I'm writing a history of primatology because as I was saying earlier, and oh, I think that okay. non-human primates are the species that we can learn most from. They're the ones most likely to say they're the obvious point of comparison. And the history of our relationship with them is therefore, you know, a subject of tremendous interest. And um, I don't think it's been um, well done um, in the uh, uh, in the past. And for many years now, I've 
I've done a course, I've been teaching a course at the University of Notre Dame on the history of primatology, and I think I've got to the point now where where I can um, where I can write the uh, the book, and of course, you know, it, it, it is full of um, full of great great fantastic great stories with this. The one species that entertains us better than our own as well. Some people would say dogs, and they're very entertaining, but I, I think that it's it's non-human primates, especially chimpanzees, a wonderful yeah. source of um, uh, insights into ourselves. Marvellous. Well, thank you very much. Thank you again so much. It's been a wonderful interview, and thanks so much for your well, time. Well, it's very kind of you. So I hope you have enjoyed this wonderful two-part episode of the Burning Archive where we have explored world history with Felipe Fernandez Amesto, the world's leading historian of the world. I learned so much from that interview. It was really one of uh, a great moment in my life to have met and uh, conversed with a person who I've read for, I don't know, 25 or 30 years and learnt so much from about the world, about history and about culture and change. And I hope you have learnt something from these podcasts too. Let me just wrap up the show then by saying that you can check out my writing and my activities, my podcasts, my videos, my new online course on mindful history at the burningarchive.com. It's my sort of author website that I've just recently renovated a little bit. Uh, So it's easy to find all those links to the podcasts, YouTube channel, uh, my social media and my books, 13 Ways of Looking at a Bureaucrat's out now and also my new online course provided through Learn Worlds on Mindful History, how you can use history to make wise decisions today. So check that out, follow the links. You can also uh, subscribe to my free weekly newsletter at jeffrich.substack.com and if you choose you can also choose to support this little independent author there by taking out a paid subscription at Substack. Thank you so much everyone for joining me in this remarkable I guess nearly two hours of conversation with really one of the world's great historians and I do urge you, if nothing else, to go to your library, go to your bookshop, go to your online book retailer, pick up a copy of 13 Ways of Looking at a Bureaucrat, but also make sure you borrow or buy a few of the great history books written by Felipe Fernandez Armesto. And uh, next week on the podcast, I will be talking to another notable historian, a local historian, Dr. Hannah Forsyth. Do join me for that. And after that, I am planning to uh, provide a series of the Burning Archive podcast dedicated to the Nobel Prize for Literature in the month leading up to the announcement of the 2023 Nobel Prize for Literature. I'm going to look at Olga Tokarczuk, the 2018 winner, Annie Ono, last year's winner, 
and the uh, the winner from 1923, 100 years ago, and the winner from 50 years ago, 1973, both of whom have some sort of connection to the Burning Archive podcast. Okay, until then, do give the podcast a like, a share, a positive review on iTunes, spread the word about the Burning Archive, and until then, do remember what thou lovest well will not be reft from thee.